Thank you, first of all, for a wonderful presentation. Really did appreciate it. Within the Christian church, we have various divisions. We have the Methodists, we have the Baptists, we have the Lutherans, and so forth. In the last 50 years, there has been an ecumenical movement to try to bring um, these various Christian faiths to common ground. You and the Jewish faith have the Reformed, the Orthodox, and the Conservative. What sorts of things are happening to bring those groups together? Is it necessary? And what can we learn in 2012 with respect to any sort of movement that does bring these yeah. groups together? It's, it's a great question. There are actually more Jewish groups than that because there's the Reconstructionist movement and the Renewal movement and Secular Humanist Jews. And then there are, there are multiple versions of Orthodox Jews who don't like each other. Interfaith conversation is easier than ecumenical conversation. I can much more easily have a conversation with a Christian than I can with an ultra-Orthodox Jew. It's different, right? The closer you are, the rougher it is. Put a Methodist and a Baptist in the same room, it can get ugly. Uh, put a Methodist and a Catholic in the same room, it's not quite so bad. Right? And you throw in somebody who's Eastern Orthodox and the Baptist has no clue. Right? Um, <laughs> Where this comes together is in terms of worship. So in churches, particularly churches that celebrate fellowship meals or communion or Eucharist, in some churches that's a closed table. And if you're not baptized in that church, you can't, you can't participate in the fellowship meal. And, and that's, a, that's a breaking apart of what the church would call the body of Christ. So in that sense, the ecumenical movement in the church is really important because the church itself, this is the epistle to the Ephesians, says it's one church and one body and one Lord. So how can it be all those different things? That doesn't mean you have to celebrate the same way. I wouldn't give up your music for a, a United Methodist Church, seven verses by Charles Wesley hymn in a heart. Stay with what you've got. Um, but can we worship together? Yes, it's happening. What's also happening is we're seeing different alliances, liberal Jews and liberal Christians, form alliances over here, conservative Jews and conservative Christians form alliances over here. Um, you've seen that in California over Proposition 8. I live in Tennessee, we're not even close to that. Um, in the Jewish community, we are very much at odds, but we do have something called the Conference of Presidents, over 51 Jewish organizations, because in other words, we don't have one single head Jew. But we do have a Conference of Presidents, and they just came back from a week in Israel, 51 presidents of Jewish organizations forced to talk to each other. Right? And nobody killed each other, so I take that meeting was a success. I have low expectations. Um, we still talk with each other. That's the important thing. So as we move together, what happens, people on the extremes move farther apart. Because they say, well, if they're getting together, they must be a problem. We have to be even more distant. So it's often a two-step forward, one-step back model. The closer churches come to the mainstream, the farther apart the fundamentalists are going to be. Then you're stuck. And I think that might be human nature. Another question. We, you talked a little bit about the evangelical aspect of Christianity. Is there anything similar to that within the Jewish faith? Yeah. The Jews have missionaries. It's, it's unlikely you'll find a Jew kind of coming to your house, knocking on your door and saying, have I got good news for you? <laughs> because Jews don't think you need to be Jewish in order to be saved. But that doesn't, that doesn't mean we don't have that. Um, there's at least one group in Judaism that's interested in getting Jews to be more Jewish. 
And what they're interested in doing is coming to Jewish households and speaking to Jewish youth on college campuses and saying things like, did you light candles on Friday night and do you want us to help make your kitchen kosher? Um, and uh, why don't you come worship with us? So basically what we've got is internal evangelization with some Jews trying to make other Jews better Jews. And we can also say, no, thank you. <laughs> also say, no, thank you. Good. Reverend Praise God. Amen. Um, thank you for the opportunity to dialogue. My question comes for, on behalf of my daughter, and she couldn't be here because she didn't have to work. But she wanted me to specifically ask you this question. How do you interpret and explain to college students and other young adults the second commandment? Exodus 24, 5. You have to read it out because Jews and Christians do the commandments differently. <laughs> okay. Um, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above or on the earth or beneath the earth or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Great. Okay. So when we look at that, the first thing we have to do is figure out where the question is located, right? Does it mean you shall have no other gods before me and is that the problem? Or is it that you shall not make a graven image which cuts out, you know, painting, sculpture, or whatnot? Or is it this jealous God that makes us a little nervous because you've got this generational concern? So where is her concern on this? One of her major concerns is the cross and other images and altars within uh, the, the church and um, the differences. Yeah. Um, God doesn't want us to give up our artistic impulse. Um, so when we read about the, as we've been reading in the Torah portions the past couple of weeks, in the development of the wilderness sanctuary, um, they talk about how the curtains are to be made and how the wood is to be cut and the decorations that are there. This is all art, right? So music and art are part of the biblical tradition. The point is you don't worship those images, right? So one can look at um, the Mona Lisa or Michelangelo's statue and say, that's lovely, but you don't bow down to it. It's not God. Um, so that if you have a cross, there's gotta be one here, this is a church, right? Ah, there's one right there. Usually, right? Okay, um, it doesn't mean you're worshiping the cross. It, it's like a prayer tool. It's the art that points to what you worship. In the same way, you don't worship the Bible, you worship that to which the Bible points. So God doesn't want us to give up our artistic abilities. And it's actually the case when you go to Jewish interpretation of art, they actually wonder, you know, does this count as art or not? And they make a distinction. This is in the Talmud, it's about Zara, um, where they say, you know, if it's a piece of art for decoration, it's fine. If it's a piece of art that's supposed to be worshipped, then you don't want to have anything to do with it. Which is how we get great Jewish artists, right? Somebody like Mark Chagall, who does wonderful crucifixions. I don't think God wants us to give up our artistic impulse. And if we have a piece of art or a sculpture, or a statue, or an icon that evokes in us God. I think that's a good thing rather than a bad thing. 
I don't think that's what God is forbidding. Thank you. Let's open the floor up. Let's take questions from you. There are far more of you than we are here. So please, let's go to the microphone. Um, come down and, and, and you line up and we will take your question. We would ask that you would offer one question. Therefore, we can get to as many as possible. And we know we have members of Christ our Redeemer who have questions as well. Would you please come up? Thank you very much. I loved your talk. It was wonderful. Um, could you um, point out the differences between Christian morality and Jewish morality in terms of how we treat each other as, as people? Yeah. Um, I don't think there's a difference in terms of that. We are both commanded to love our neighbors as ourselves. And Leviticus goes on and says, not only do you love your neighbor, you have to love the stranger who dwells among you because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. So everybody is commanded in the tradition uh, to treat each other as if the other person is a child of God. I think this comes from Genesis, because all humanity is created in the image and likeness of God. If you mistreat another, you're mis and this goes back to the idolatry, you're mistreating someone in the image and likeness of God, you're mistreating God. Right? Jesus makes that clear in Matthew 25, um, when he says, you know, he says to these people, you didn't take care of me when I was hungry. You know, you didn't feed me. You didn't visit me when I was in prison. And the people say to him, and by the way, this is the line getting into heaven, right? The people say to him, you know, when did we see you when you were hungry? And he says, as you have done to the least of these, so you have done for me. But that's also Jewish morality, and that's why tzedakah, tzedakah, right? Um, the idea of giving to charity, to care for other people, is so extraordinarily important. We get there in different ways. Jews are commanded to be ethical to, to our neighbors. It is a commandment. We don't have a choice. In Christianity, the model is when your heart is filled with the Christ, you would naturally do good works. This is what the church will sometimes refer to as the new covenant. It's a circumcision of the heart. So the Christian is compelled by internal theology, by the indwelling of the Christ, to act appropriately. What happens? Jews don't follow the law and Christians don't behave the way they're supposed to. Right? So we're still working on it. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you very much for your presentation. Um, in your opinion, is the Gospel of John more in part anti-Jewish? No. It's a wonderful question. It depends upon who you ask. Um, in the Jewish annotated New Testament that I just edited, um, the article on John, the annotations on John, are done by a woman named Adele Reinhardt. She's a, a practicing Jew, lives in Ottawa, in Canada. Um, she wrote an earlier book called Befriending the Beloved Disciple. And what she said was, how you read John depends upon, in effect, the lenses in which you read it. So in reading with her Christian students, and she teaches at the University of Ottawa, so it's a secular institution, um, a number of her Christian students don't see anything that's anti-Jewish at all. They see in the language of the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, used over 70 times. They say, well, that just shows how Jewish Jesus is and how Jewish the gospel is, and it's Jews arguing with other Jews. And then when she reads, when she does synagogue Bible studies, sometimes looking at the gospel of John, the Jewish audience is appalled by this. They think it's the most anti-Jewish thing they've ever said. And they say things like, 
in John 8, Jesus says, you Jews are children of the devil. What she tries to do is bring those readers together. Can it be interpreted as anti-Jewish? Absolutely, that's a legitimate interpretation. But because a number of Christians do not interpret it as anti-Jewish, they recognize how the interpretation has gone bad, but they hold the text um, not culpable. We can't really answer the question. Part of the problem depends upon who defines anti-Judaism and who is doing the defining. What's anti-Jewish rhetoric to one person is not anti-Jewish rhetoric to another. And the final problem here is we don't know who John was because the original Gospels are all anonymous. So is John a Jew talking to other Jews? Is John somebody who's left the synagogue, wants nothing to do with Jews, and really does hate them? We simply don't know. The best analogy here, think of an anonymous gospel, would be comedy. You've heard of Jackie Mason? Jackie Mason is a Jewish comedian who tells stories about shrill, annoying Jewish women and inept Jewish men who are henpecked. And for some reason, Jews find that funny. Chris Rock. Chris Rock will tell stories about loud African-American women and African-American men who have to listen to these women because they're loud and they're scared. And you could watch him give a program at the Apollo Theater and the audience thinks it's funny. What happens if they change materials? Right? And at that point, both the Anti-Defamation League and the NAACP are going to be upset. The reason it works is because we know it's coming from the community to the community. With the Gospel of John, we don't know. And because we don't have enough information, we can't officially pronounce it anti-Jewish or not. To read it as anti-Jewish is entirely appropriate. To read it not as anti-Jewish is also appropriate. It depends upon the reader. You're welcome. But um, to step forward some years, what do you think the effect of Luther's, um, Luther's sayings about the Jews had uh, on the Jewish-Christian relationship? Yeah, so we're talking about Martin Luther here. Um, Martin Luther actually starts out as being a friend of the Jews. He thought the reason the Jews weren't converting is because they were so badly treated by the Catholic Church that if the church would suddenly make nice to them, all the Jews would sign on to the program. And he was shocked when the Jews said, Jesus, no thank you. After that, he writes a text called On the Jews and Their Lies, which is a horrible text. It actually didn't have much effect for the next 400 years because even people at Luther's time realized this was an aberrant text. Most of Luther's work is not quite that awful, and it was the Nazis who reclaimed it. Um, the Lutheran Church, all Lutheran churches today have disavowed that. Um, there are groups of Lutherans, we've heard about different groups of Baptists and different groups of Methodists. There are different groups of Lutherans. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which is the, the major liberal branch, um, on their website has a fabulous uh, piece on how to deal with Martin Luther's statement and insisting that Martin Luther's statement no longer holds for the church. Um, Anti-Jewish attitudes had been in place before Luther. They were in place from the Catholic Church on. Luther simply stepped into that and for the most part ran with it. Things did not substantially change because of it. 
Um, Moses marries a Midianite woman, that's Zipporah, and later Moses marries a Cushite woman, which causes some flack. Um, Queen Esther did fabulously well. She marries the king of Persia. The guy's an idiot, and he spends most of the book drunk, but she married up, right? <laughs> well, Bathsheba is married to a Hittite. We're not sure what Bathsheba is, but Bathsheba starts at least in an intermarriage because she's married to Uriah the Hittite. That didn't work out so well. Um, Ruth is a Moabite, and she marries Boaz, and she's David's great-grandmother, right? And when we come to the New Testament, we have this wonderful guy named Timothy, whose mother and grandmother are Jews, but his father's a Gentile, and there's some question about his status. You know, is he Jewish, is he Gentile? Um, and the book of Acts says Paul actually circumcises him in order to get him into the temple. So the Bible is already telling us that there, there's intermarriage. Don't trust me. I'm not making it up. No, it just hurts to be circumcised. I wouldn't know. <laughs> But it does suggest a certain type of dedication, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> in, in, intermarriage is going to happen. It's always happened. So the question is, how do you form family if parents are objecting, if families are objecting? What do you do with the children? Do you send them to Hebrew school and then to catechism? Do they do Shabbos twice a week? Right? And then when do they get their homework done? Um, <laughs> It, it is extraordinarily hard, but there are resources available to you. There are marvelous Jewish Christian interfaith resources. There are interfaith families in the synagogue where I was this morning because some of them introduced themselves to me. The important thing is that the person outside the faith be welcomed in the, in the tradition itself and do as much as possible within that tradition. One of the reasons um, we did the, the volume on the Jewish Annotated New Testament is because there are interfaith families. So interfaith families can then look at the New Testament through a Jewish lens and then see what more they might share. And as I mentioned yesterday, um, and this is controversial, I grant this, um, the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, Our Father who art in heaven, it's a perfectly good Jewish prayer. There's nothing in that prayer a Jew can't say. It never mentions the name of Jesus. It's a good Jewish prayer. And it translates perfectly into Hebrew, by the way. I'm wondering if in interfaith families, with, with the parents' permission, say Christian grandparents and Jewish grandkids, I wonder if that prayer can serve as a bridge rather than a wedge. And if we can use some of the teachings of Jesus, which are very, very Jewish teachings, like the parables, and say this is something that Jews and Christians share, maybe in interfaith families they can show us a new way of living, not so much merging the two but recognizing that one can inform the other. The other thing I'll suggest, and this is what sociologists tell us, it doesn't always work, but for the most part, kids in interfaith families raised in both religions are not happy. Because the idea is the parents tell them when you're old enough you'll choose, but that doesn't work because it means choosing mummy's religion over daddy's or daddy's religion over mummy's. The better way of doing it is you raise the kid in one tradition but you introduce the kid to the other. So you raise the kid as a Christian, but you make sure the kid understands what Jewish liturgy is like, what Shabbos services are like, what a Jewish household is like. Their grandparents can be very helpful, or vice versa. You raise the kid as a Jew, but take the kid to church so the, church, the kid can experience Christian worship. 
it's very, very hard, but it's happening, and it's something we all need to deal with. You're welcome. Hi. Uh, I think you touched on this a bit, but maybe you could expand on it a little more, in that, um, you know, Christians are obviously very influenced by Jewish writings, Jewish tradition. I just wondered if, you know, uh, are Jews influenced by Christian writings specifically? If you think about, for example, Jesus and his disciples, had several criticisms about the way Judaism was practiced in the first century. So, as it's gone forward, has there been influences by those uh, writings yeah. on, on Jews? Um, less so the New Testament writings than the interpretation of those writings and how the church took shape. So, in fact, we cannot understand Jewish history or theology unless we understand the church. It's not like on Easter Sunday the church went this way and the synagogue went that way, and the only time they talked is when they wanted to kill each other. Um, they're continuing looking over at each other and developing their theologies and dialogue. Um, one of the reasons the church celebrates the Sabbath on Sunday is because the early Christians said we want to distinguish ourselves from the Jews. We're something different than them. In the early church, we begin to see in the second century a real strong movement toward virginity and celibacy. Right? That was the way to go. The more the church pushed celibacy, the more the Jews said, get married, make babies. In the first century, there are groups of celibate Jews. The Dead Sea Scrolls attest to them. Philo, a Jewish philosopher in Alexandria, talks about a group of people called the Therapeutai. They look like Jewish shakers. You know, men and women living in adjoining dormitories who come together for communal meals and antiphonal singing. Right? Celibacy was part of early Judaism. The church pushed it. It drops out. Early Jews were very concerned about heaven and hell and what heaven was like. The more the church talked about heaven and hell, the more the synagogue said, well, let them worry about that. We're focused on this world. Let the church worry about salvation. We'll talk about sanctification in this world. The more the church talked about monks and nuns and these fictive kinship groups, the more the synagogue said, it's the family. It's the family. It's your mom and your dad and your kids and your aunts and your uncles. So family values becomes even more important in early Judaism because of that pressure on the Christian. And the reason, in part, Jews are so interested in things like academics, intellectualism, books, is because the church, in a number of places, forbade Jews from owning land. So Jews had to figure out, if they're going to, they won't let us own land, we can't be farmers. They won't let us into the guild, so we can't be artisans. We need to use our brains, and we need to know that at any moment, they will throw us out. We need to have stuff that we can bring with us. You can't bring a shop and you can't bring land, but you can bring a book and you can bring your brains. So in part, Jewish culture develops the way it does because of Christian pressure on us. Wonderful question. For some people, it's not reconcilable. 
and a lot of people after after a personal tragedy. I mean, you don't need the Holocaust, the death of a child, yeah. an injury, Rwanda, Bosnia, Darfur. Um, a lot of people say there can't be a God, and if there is a God, God has absconded. God has abandoned us. Tsunami. Um, Katrina. But what a number of people do is say, God has not abandoned us. God is with us in the suffering. Right? Elie Wiesel tells the story about, um, in the book Night, very famous scene, where a young child has been hanged by the Nazis. And one person, one Jew looks at another and says, where's God? And the response is, God is hanging on the gallows. It's a Christian image. Where's God? God is present in the suffering. God is with us in the suffering. And for people who are able to believe that, it's belief in God that allows them to keep their humanity, keep their sense of love, and say there must be a higher power because there has to be something more than this. And for a number of people, there has to be something after this. Hence, resurrection it's a psychological thing. It's a thing in one's heart. It doesn't make any sense rationally. So the idea of reconciling it doesn't work. It can't be reconciled. But religion or religious belief, it's like love. If it's there, you can't do anything to get rid of it. It's there. And you live into that moment because that's what your heart is telling you. If you think rationally, it doesn't make any sense at all. But if you think in terms of love, you think in terms of need, and you think in terms of what certain people are able to bear, that's how they do it. And that's why many Jews and many Christians who are in concentration camps come out of the camps even more strongly believing in God, and they see God as that which preserved them, and they see God as being with those who died, and they're bundled in the arms of God. It's the best we can do. It's a mystery. I also think that uh, there is not enough
that I'm convinced of. Good job, Now, we have, thank you, we have some five minutes left. And, and, and that is it. Our goal tonight to dismiss at 9 p.m. I see so many, and then I see only a few from Christ out of the lifting questions. I want to make sure I get your question. And then there were two questions, or at least three from Christ our Redeemer. And I don't know if you have those on the screen. Uh, and I know Christ our Redeemer has been very kind to our guests, but your questions are certainly needed. So we would ask that we would extend one more than 10 minutes and we'll dismiss at 19. Please, your question. Thank you. So about 15, 20 minutes ago, I think you said, I maybe misquoted you, that Paul did a very good job of teaching a version of Judaism that's acceptable to the Gentiles. And a few minutes ago, more recently, you talked about how the two groups tend to say, if you do that, I won't. I'll do the opposite. And I guess my question is, do you think we can emerge uh, with the understanding that we think about Torah as parallel to Jesus in some sense? Can we emerge a unifying theory of religion that says we really do have the same values with some differences in Symbolism, perhaps? I wouldn't push it that far. Um, I want to keep the differences. Lahabdil, Habdalah. Okay. The church and synagogue are not the same. And I'm not sure we're all walking up the same mountain. I think there might be different mountains. Can you say a little more about that? Um, different religions have different goals, whether it's Islam or Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, Hinduism. Um, and we image God in different ways. It may be the same God, but we image God in different ways. Jews obviously don't have a trinity. Um, Instead of thinking about us all walking up the same mountain, I want to think we're walking up different mountains. They're all pointing in the same direction. But we all follow different pathways. And I don't think that the goal of life should be some sort of um, common denominator or unity. I really want to celebrate the difference. But we're at a point now where we don't have to define over against each other. The church and the synagogue did it because they're trying to figure out who they are. Jews are trying to figure out who they are without a temple and being in exile from their land. The church is trying to figure out who it is as all these other pagans keep coming in and now you've got Druids and, and you've got Visigoths and, and God knows who else coming into this group. Uh, people from New Guinea are now Christian. Or what does that mean? We're now at a point where we kind of know who we are. Um, this church knows who it is. It knows what its polity is. It knows what its Bible is. It knows what its rituals are. It knows what its ordination system is. We don't have to define over against each other anymore. So to take the positive spin on your question, um, we can agree to disagree and learn from each other. And we don't have to define over against anymore. Right? So I think we're, we're in better shape than we were, oh, 2,000 years ago or even Thanks for your fine, your fine presentation. Um, earlier on, you made a, a really great distinction, which opened my eyes greatly, and even though it's really simple, which is that there is a distinction between Judaism and the Hebrew Scriptures, which we refer to as the Old Testament. Um, one thing that makes that distinction really uh, poignant for me is that it seems it would seem that what we refer to as Isaiah 53 clearly clearly refers to, to who we call Jesus. Uh, and so, 
the, the, question, the Christian's uh, question, obviously, is, well, then, if it's not Jesus, then who, then who do the Jews think he is? Yeah. And uh, a really, the heart of the matter, really, there is that, uh, that he, if Isaiah 53 refers to him as being pierced for our transgressions. Now, of course, we understand the Jewish perspective that, uh, you know, Messiah comes and ushers in the Messianic kingdom. Yeah. But the, the Hebrew scriptures talk, uh, well, at least from a Christian perspective, clearly talk of another role for Messiah, which is he's also the suffering servant. Got it, got it, got it. So the, the key thing is if there is, well, from the Christian perspective, of course, really orthodox, well, being orthodox, uh, so to speak. All right, let me talk about then Isaiah 53, as both Jews and Christians would understand it. Well, let, let me, I'll, do, I'll, be, I'll finish really quickly because the, 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 key, the, the key point really is, uh, it, since we're talking about mis misconceptions, my understanding that I have gotten, and I, I want to know if this is a misconception, is that, that uh, Jews consider that the, uh, what, you know, the Torah calls for blood sacrifice, animal sacrifice. And so that's been done away with, as you mentioned, since AD 70. Yeah. So how does a Jew uh, expect to be atoned for, atone for sin? Got it, got it, got it, got it. Got it. Okay. Isaiah 53. Um, when the early church was telling the story of Jesus, because the early church people were Jews or Gentiles who were familiar with the scriptures of Israel, they told the story of Jesus according to biblical templates. And they went back and they, they picked up certain passages and they said, this looks like Jesus. Nobody prior to the time of Jesus ever read Isaiah 53 as referring to a Messiah. And Isaiah 53 doesn't use the word Messiah. It talks about a servant, right? Elsewhere in Isaiah, replete in Isaiah, Isaiah talks about my servant Israel. And the Jewish tradition says that the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 42 and the rest of Isaiah is the community of Israel wounded by being taken into exile, pierced by having its temple destroyed, um, in effect abused, wounded, bleeding, because it's in exile. And when God brings God's servant Israel back to the land, that's a resurrection scene, the nations of the world will be healed by this because they will see the incredible power of the God of Israel who would take a people brought into exile that had never ever happened before in antiquity take a people brought into exile and return them to the land. In terms of Jewish view of blood sacrifice, Jews had already lost a temple once. It's, it's, it's awkward when you lose one twice, right? Um, they lost a temple during the Babylonian exile. There was no blood sacrifice. And Jews being very practical people say, if there's a temple, then you offer a sacrifice. But if there's no temple, you can't offer a sacrifice. And they never thought that God required it in terms of being forgiven sins. Because the Psalms talk about God who always forgives sins, right? God forgives a repentant sinner. David sins big time. No temple. So the Jewish tradition says if there's a temple, you offer a sacrifice. But since God is always ready to welcome the repentant sinner, God always forgives sins. God's always there for us. We don't need the blood sacrifice. It's the church through the epistle to the Hebrews that comes in and says God absolutely requires the blood sacrifice, Judaism says no it doesn't because Judaism has moved on from what Leviticus said in, in a quite practical manner. And here Jews and Christians have to agree to disagree. Jews do not see themselves in a state of alienation from God because we believe that when we repent, God forgives us. That's how it works.
uh, when, um, when the New Testament, Gamaliel's speech in Acts 5 talks about Thutis, some people would have looked at him as a prophet, or the Egyptian who shows up around Acts 22 or so. Um, so early Jews thought prophecy had continued. They didn't think it stopped. Where Jews get the idea that prophecy stops is from the rabbinic system. So it's people in the year 200 or 300 saying, you know what, it stopped with Malachi. But historically, you're doing um, And the church does the same thing, by the way. There are gospels other than the ones that are in the New Testament, right? But the official church says, you know what, we're not going to talk about that again. So if we look at Jewish and Christian history, it's a whole lot more messy. Um, most Jews are not prophesying the coming of the Messiah. Most of them, when they are prophesying, are prophesying the coming of the Messianic Age. And it's the Messianic Age, it's God's kingdom, which is really the focus rather than the Messiah who brings it in.
I have run out of uh, books of the Jewish Annotated New Testament, but I am told you can get it on Amazon, so if you'd like to get one, um, just go to Amazon and order it. There are other books that uh, uh, Professor uh, Amy Jill has published that may be of interest to all of you, both communities. I hope you take advantage of that. I hope you will join us for some uh, desserts in the hall after the program. Thank you all.